that I've got four little kids. We have a saying in our house that Meredith and I, no matter how much we've kind of tried to correct the grammar of this saying, it still happens time and time again. When one of them does something that causes an accident for one of the other kids, these are the words that often come spilling out. I didn't do it by purpose. It's a kind of grammatically incorrect statement, isn't it? But you, I think probably get the idea of what they're saying. Let me give you an example. Piper will be lying on the lounge room floor, kind of half on the beanbag, half off it. Hamish will wander through, stumble over her leg, fall onto the floor. He'll start crying. Meredith or I will come into the room to find out what's happening. And Piper will say, I didn't do it by purpose. Didn't do it by purpose. Purpose is a loaded word, isn't it? I wonder, do you already know what your purpose is? Or are you still searching out a particular purpose for you? Because today, I want us to be thinking about this idea of purpose. What is our purpose? And what is the purpose of Trinity Church only? What are we supposed to be doing? And how do we go about doing these things? It's one of the big questions that we have in life, isn't it? I wonder how you might answer that question today. What is your purpose? What are you here for? Perhaps for many of you, your purpose is tied up in what you do each day. It might be that you're a maker of things, a maker of houses or cars or websites or databases, whatever it might look like. Perhaps your purpose is more to do with looking after people. Maybe you're here to raise kids or care for elderly parents or fix those who are feeling unwell. What is your purpose? Last week we celebrated Easter together. If you weren't here with us, it was a wonderful weekend, a great time where we were able to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It was a great weekend. I think many people enjoyed it. Um, we saw some interesting acting and some things that we don't see every Sunday. Uh, it was a great time together. On Sunday, we talked about how the resurrection of Jesus validated him as the king of the kingdom. We saw the resurrection of Jesus was about validating the king of the kingdom. And today, one week on from Easter Sunday, I think the temptation for us is to kind of move on from the joy of the resurrection and just to get back into the nitty-gritty of life. Today I want us to see that the resurrection is not only about validating the king of the kingdom, but that the reality of Jesus' resurrection should give our lives shape and purpose. And that should affect both our lives individually and the life of our church. And to help us see that, to help us kind of follow where I'm going, we're going to look at two passages. Uh, Mark read both of those to us. The first is from Colossians chapter 3 and the second from Matthew 28. We looked at Colossians as a church not all that long ago, so it should be a, a passage that's familiar to you. But let me just pick it up again and read to you from Colossians chapter 3. I want to read just from verse 1. As Mark said, you'll find that on page 1831 of your Bibles. You should note how the resurrection is used in this passage as I read it to you. 
Paul says this in Colossians. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So here's where I'm going. You'll see it listed in your outline today if, you, if that helps you follow along. Last week we saw that Jesus' resurrection validated him as king. Today I want us to see that Jesus' resurrection should make a difference to the way in which we live our lives. That's because as those who are united with Jesus, we share in his resurrection. And as those who share in his resurrection, our minds are set on the things above. Or perhaps a better way of putting it is our minds are set on the age to come rather than on the things of the earth, this earth. I'm not sure that we're making popcorn down there, Pete. <laughs> so, what I want you to try and see today is you could say that at least part of our purpose as Christians, part of our purpose is that we will be shaped by the things of the new creation rather than the things of the old. You see, in Jesus' resurrection, the new creation has been brought forward. Jesus, in his resurrection body, is the first fruits of the new creation. And as such, we being united with him, are called to be people who live as members of the new creation. Now, let me be clear at this point. Paul is not saying in this letter... Uh, to the Colossian church, don't worry about the world around you. He's not saying the things of the world no longer matter or don't have any value. But he is saying live life as someone who has already been raised. And that means live as someone who is clothed with the clothes or the uniform of heaven. If you remember when we looked at this uh, chapter a few weeks ago as a church, I talked about how Paul was kind of encouraging us to shed our dragon skins, to take off those things that were not so attractive about ourselves. Paul goes on to show us what that means. He says to get rid of sexual immorality and impurity and greed and slander and malice and filthy language. And in their place, we're to put on the clothes of heaven, things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. See, that's what it means, isn't it, to have our hearts set on the things above. Not that we forget about the world in which we live, but that we'd be shaped and changed by Jesus' resurrection. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it not only validates Jesus as king of the kingdom, but it should also change us. It should have implications on the way in which we live our lives. Now, of course, although we're to have our hearts and minds set on the things above, on the things of the new creation, the reality is, isn't it, that we still live in the old order of things. We still struggle in a world that's groaning and hurting decaying. And Paul knows this. He's not oblivious to what the world is like. He's not oblivious to the struggle that it is to put on this heavenly uniform. Now just flick back in your Bibles with me to page 1826 to Philippians, which is another letter that Paul wrote, this time to a different church, the Philippian church. 
Philippians chapter 3. I want to read to you from verse 10 of chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul here is again speaking about the resurrection and its implication for our lives. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, for Paul, the reality of what lies ahead for him, his own bodily resurrection, is a goal for him worth pursuing. It's part of his purpose in life. Pursuing the new creation, it doesn't come automatically for Paul. He has to work at it. It takes effort on his part, but it's a strain worth it. I hope you can see that from Philippians chapter 3. Last week I spoke about the resurrection as being a powerful vindication and validation for who Jesus is, for him being king of the kingdom. We saw that trusting in the resurrection of Jesus meant that our sins could be forgiven. Today I hope you're able to just glimpse a little bit of the power of the resurrection for changing us today for transforming us to be more like Jesus, making us people of the new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't need you to go there, just read this. It says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. I hope this morning you're encouraged by this because I think this is such a positive aspect of our gospel Jesus transforms people. As people of the resurrection, we can be changed. He makes us into a new creation. It's through his work, through his power, that we can be changed for the better. And who of us wouldn't want to have more of what we read about in Colossians? More humility, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more compassion. Such a positive aspect, isn't it? The transforming work of Jesus. I hope and pray that over the next few weeks you'll have an opportunity one way or another to share with someone, perhaps in our community or perhaps in your workplace, about how Jesus' resurrection has changed and is changing you as a person. How despite the struggle, despite the fact that we still live in a fallen, broken world, how you're struggling to become more like Jesus. How you're taking on these kingdom attributes, these attributes that belong to the new creation. How you're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. I think it's part of our purpose, individually and as a church, that we would be seen as people of the resurrection, people who take on these wonderful characters.
Well, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel, and today we get to the last five verses of Matthew, and I think these verses also have a lot to contribute to this question of purpose. What are we to do individually and as a church? Let me read to you uh, these verses that are called the Great Commission. This is Jesus speaking. Well, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you notice in this passage the authority that accompanies the risen Jesus? He says of himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's now sounding like a triumphant king, isn't he? And he passes this authority on just as we saw in the kids' talk, with the passing on of the baton to the 11 disciples. And he does that kind of through a charge or a purpose statement, doesn't he? I wonder if you've picked up the two almost different aspects of this charge. Firstly, we have the making of disciples. And secondly, we have the teaching and the growing of those who have already been made disciples. What do you think it means to make disciples what does it mean to make disciples I think at least part of that is it's got to be about getting to know Jesus what's our role in that do you think helping others to get to know Jesus I think there are many different ways that we might introduce people to Jesus ultimately God tells us that he reveals himself to people it's ultimately God's work to show people who he is like but there are ways in which we can be involved in that process we can pray for our family and friends we can ask God to be at work in their lives a few months ago uh, when we had our trial service Mike introduced us to these 316441 cards. I don't know if you remember seeing them. I've got a, a stack of them out on the table out there. If you don't remember them, they're called 316441 cards. The 316 is from John 316, that five famous Bible verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Anyone who believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. That's John 3.16. That's the 316 of these 316441 cards. The 441 part is that we would pick four people that we would pray for for one year. Four people for one year. I hope they were a helpful tool for you back as we came to our launch Sunday working out who we might pray for. Can I encourage you to take a 316441 card if you don't have one already and put a few names on it about people who you might be praying for that they might too become disciples of Jesus. 
one of the things you might like to pray for them is that they would join us as we run our Simply Christianity course. That course I mentioned before that we're running on the Monday nights in May. It's a chance for people to read through the Gospel of Luke together. It's a relaxed course, there's no pressure, it's kind of a fun time for us to think through who Jesus is. It's a great chance for people to ask any questions they might have about him and hopefully leave knowing a little more about who Jesus is. For Trinity Church only, the the making of disciples, it's a, a large part of our purpose. We take these words seriously from Jesus, we take them as a charge for us that we'd be actively seeking to make disciples. And you might find that a difficult thing to do in your own life, and I would tell you that churches as, in, as bodies find it hard to be on mission all the time as well. And to help us do that here at Trinity Church Only, we have, a, a, we have structured the way that we work as a staff team to try and help us stay on mission. So I've introduced Mike to you many times before. Most of you will know Mike. Mike helps to oversee our kids' ministry program, but Mike is also responsible for helping us keep on mission. His job is to remind us in staff meetings, we're a church that should be on mission How does this activity that we do contribute towards people getting to know Jesus? Jesus tells us as a church, make disciples. And so we want to take that task seriously. Matthew goes on to say, making disciples also includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism and conversion kind of go hand in hand in the Bible, but I want to pause here for a moment just to remind you of the powerful witness that baptisms are. See, like communion, baptisms are a kind of physical representation of the spiritual world. They help us see God at work in people's lives. In baptism, God gives us a gift to show us his love. Baptism shows us how God incorporates people into his kingdom. It's supposed to be a reminder that we're part of God's family and that we're united with Jesus. I I love baptisms for that reason. I think they are so powerful, so good at helping us to see how God is at work in his people's lives. And here in Matthew, we're reminded to keep on doing this, to keep making disciples, to keep expressing the love that God has for his people through baptism and for the gift that that is. Did you notice also in this passage, each part of the Trinity here, God the Father, the Son and the Spirit are mentioned by Matthew. Jesus instructs baptisms to be done not just in his name, but in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. This is a passage steeped in the Trinitarian ideas. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. We assume here through the Father. The Son passes that authority on. And although he's leaving to ascend to be with the Father, he still promises to be with us, presumably through his Spirit. So the first part of the commission here is to go and make disciples of Jesus, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't finish there, does he? The commission continues with instructions to go and 
teach disciples to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them. Our work as disciple makers is not just about helping people to know Jesus, it's also about helping people to grow in him, to know him and to obey everything that he has commanded. That's why here at Trinity Church Only, we want to teach the entire Bible. We're not just focused on a small section of it. We believe that this book is the full counsel of God, and it's important that we're reading it and learning it together. That includes the Old Testament. For the next two weeks, we're going back to the start of Matthew's Gospel, but after that, we're going to spend four weeks in a book that maybe you haven't read before. It's called Ruth. That's because we value the Bible We value the whole of it and we want ourselves to be growing in every aspect of it. Sundays are a big part of us growing and learning to obey God, aren't they? Each Sunday we come together to sing, to pray together, to be part of fellowship, to enjoy each other's company. But I pray and hope that at least part of what happens on Sunday is that each Sunday you learn a little bit more about what it means to obey King Jesus. But it's often difficult to do that on a Sunday morning, isn't it? That's why we run community groups in the week as well. Our ability to learn in this sort of format with one person speaking to a group, it's okay, but it's perhaps not the best learning format. You might remember the particularly effective illustration, but on the whole, we're not great at learning from this particular method. Community groups are a little bit different. Their ideas can be talked about, they can be kind of explored and challenged. In many ways, community groups are a better format for us to learn together. If you're not already involved in a community group, I'd love you to think about whether that's the right sort of thing for you to join. We have groups that run on Tuesdays and groups that run on Wednesday evenings, a group that meets with women on Wednesday mornings and another group that meets on Friday mornings as well. If you're not currently in a community group, I'd love you to think about it. They're not for everyone, but they are a great way for you to learn about what the Bible tells us. If you want to know more about community groups today, on your leaflet, there's a little slip, there's a box that you can tick there about community groups, or please come and see me after our service together, perhaps over lunch. Well, the very last thing that I want you to see from our passage this morning is that Jesus promises that surely he will be with us to the end of the age. Next week we're going right back to the start of Matthew's Gospel and we'll see in in those early chapters that Matthew describes Jesus as Emmanuel. That name means God with us. In the coming of Jesus, Matthew tells us that God is with us. And here at the end of his Gospel, right in the very last few verses we see Jesus promising to be with us always. Now that, of course, is not in bodily form. At this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' physical body has risen from the grave, but he's not yet ascended to the Father. That's still going to happen very soon. So what then is Jesus promising that he will be with his people to the end of the age? I think the answer is that he'll be with us through his Spirit. In John's Gospel in chapter 14... Jesus speaks of leaving this world and going to prepare a place for us. He promises one day to return, but in the meantime, he says the Father gives us an advocate or a helper in the Spirit. Let me read these words. 
Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. See, as we read and think about and consider the charge of Jesus to make and grow disciples of Jesus, it might seem an overwhelming task. How can we really help others to know about Jesus? How can we really help other people to learn to obey him? Or how could this little church possibly be effective at doing that? How could I possibly be brave enough to invite my friends to consider joining a course like Simply Christianity? And here, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, I hope is the encouragement that you need. The Father has sent an advocate to help us in the Spirit. Jesus has promised to be with us always. I hope for you today that's a great encouragement as you work towards your purpose in this world. Let me pray for us. Father God, we have so much to give you thanks for. We ask that in your kindness you would help each of us to live a life that's shaped and characterized by the resurrection of Jesus. Help each of us to pursue you. Shape us and mould us into the likeness of your Son. We ask that you'd help us to put on those clothes of heaven, things like kindness and humility and peace and patience and gentleness and compassion. Father, we thank you for sending your spirit, our helper and our advocate. And Father, we come to you asking that you would use us and use this little church to make and grow disciples of Jesus. Father, we pray that Many might join us in learning who you truly are and that you would change them. We ask this in the name of your Son, to whom will glory and honour be. Amen. I've got one question that's come through on the SMS line today. It's a good question. It comes from the text, which is a good place to start. Uh, If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 28, Let me just read it to you, verse 17. Speaking of the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And the question is to do with the doubt. What is on view here? What's Matthew trying to do? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but here's, here's my take on what's going on here and why I think this passage is good news for people like me. Um, Have you put your uh, mind in what it might have been like for those first disciples to see the risen Jesus have you wondered what was going through their minds a man who they saw die on the cross is now alive what would be your response to seeing the risen Jesus I'm encouraged by this passage because before I was a pastor I was an engineer and I kind of dealt in the facts of life so to speak if I saw someone risen from the grave so to speak I think at first glance I would doubt too Matthew's not glossing over what happened in the account. He's telling us what really happened and I think this adds to the authenticity of this gospel, doesn't it? Not everybody would believe the idea that Jesus could rise from the dead. And so Matthew tells us, plain and straight, some of the disciples doubted. 
Um, you might uh, be more familiar with or heard of Doubting Thomas in, in John's Gospel. At the end of um, John's Gospel, he tells us, John tells us this little story about Thomas. Um, Thomas had doubted in the resurrection of Jesus. And then we read these words. It says, um, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then it goes on to say, Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now John's Gospel was written so that we might believe that Jesus truly is the King of the Kingdom. Matthew's Gospel is written so that we might know Jesus and all that he did. He doesn't gloss over the details. He tells us even the kind of bits that might not sound so great at first blush, that not everybody believed, some doubted. So I hope that's helpful. Um, I think that's what Matthew's trying to do here uh, in explaining what's going on um, at the end of not everybody believing, some doubted. It's the reality.